0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. We're back with Fern Wolf. Welcome back. Thank you. So you've also written an article regarding how to produce documents under a request for production of documents seems like an obvious topic to someone who hasn't thought about it deeply but let's hear hear your position because i i, I was enlightened by what you wrote and uh, discussed
2: well i wrote the article before we, we did the before i did the ethics seminar it was born of frustration with how companies were producing documents to me over the course of my career including as a federal government attorney and then in private practice and what we would get is what we call document dumps where we would just get a whole bunch of boxes like banker's boxes of documents this is before electronic discovery and now you just get a bunch of pdfs but we would just get a lot of pieces of paper and be told to sit in a room and call through them and to go find whatever you know, the needle in the haystack. And I sometimes called it the non-existent needle in a haystack because it might not even be there. And it turns out the rule says that's not how it's supposed to be done. So under the rule, which I had a wonderful civil procedure professor who the best day of civil procedure ever was when she brought in a real-life lawyer who practiced and said, always look at the rule first. Anyway, the rule says that when you produce documents, you have an obligation to, and I, I think I have it right in there, But you are supposed to produce them um, and respond with explaining, you know, which document responds to which request. Or you can produce them as they are kept in the usual course of business. Well, if you think about what the usual course of business means is it would typically have been back in the past when I worked for the federal government if they let us in and go through their file cabinets. Mm Companies don't let you in and go through their file cabinets anymore or if a company would produce all of their personnel files and just let us go through their personnel files. So oftentimes I will say to a company, if you want to produce documents that way, just let me come in. I'd be happy to go through your personnel records. And then they will do what they're supposed to do, which is organize and sort their documents and in, in To make them correspond their responses correspond with my requests and that's what they're supposed to do and how often do you get responses where it says see documents produced yeah period and it's like i don't know which document of you know company one through 1500 and it sounds like you get company one through and their bait stamp, right? Mm-hmm. Company one through 250,000. Sometimes they're not even bait stamped. Sometimes they're not even. That.
3: Those are my favorite.
2: <laughs> that would be, I remember I actually own a bait stamper. Yeah. You know, there used to be a thing called yeah. a bait stamper. And I remember having my old firm buy me one and some of the lawyers thought it was a waste. And I was like, no, this is like really a good thing. And, but so, you know, they'll just say, see documents produced, and then you have to go somewhere and, or they ship over just boxes and boxes and boxes of documents. Or I remember being with the government, I know I talked in the article about being sent off to an unheated warehouse to go look at through boxes of documents, but they will put you in a conference room, a big firm that shall, be re- shall remain nameless, having me go into their conference room with a whole bunch of documents and then giving me paper clips and saying, "Here, you mark the ones you want us to copy." And no. No, 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 no. That's not happening because then how do I number one? Now I've lost track. I don't know that they really copied the ones I wanted copied. Mm-hmm. Plus they know which ones were interesting to me. And so they're getting your work product. Right. They get my work product and I don't know that they gave me everything I copied. So I have to sit there and write down everything that I ask them to copy page by page with a big description of it and it's a waste it's an absolute waste but the rules don't allow that and so they have to produce them as they are kept in the, the usual course which means essentially letting us in to look at them or producing personnel records in our line of work I don't know what the equivalent would be in your in personal injury if there is such a thing but or organize and sort them, you know, to correspond with the request number. So if I request all documents showing the hours my client works, they can't just say, see all documents produced. Yeah. They can say, you know, company 54 through 67 or something and like that. And that's what we do too. I if
3: When I get that, I respond with, you need to redo these and you need to indicate which documents are responsive to which requests. And if you haven't bait stamped them, you better bait stamp them so you're able to do that. Otherwise, it's me. Like, you can't, you're not supposed to just document dump.
2: So sometimes I will get in answer to an interrogatory. The company will do under, I know, the federal rule. You know, the federal rule is the option to produce. It used to be 33C. I think it might not be 33D because they renumbered. But they will do the response, the option to produce business records, which they've done wrong because, you know, there's factors that come into play when you're going to exercise the option to produce business records, including that it's just as easy for me to find, Mm -hmm. you know, the non-existent needle in a haystack in those documents as it is for the, the defendant. And then so they'll exercise the option produce business records or they'll answer by saying we're producing records. And then they'll say, you know, see response to item five in the request for production. And then the Item five in the request for production is, says, see documents produced. So I have no answer under oath. Yeah. And I'm entitled to an answer under oath. I don't know what documents answer the interrogatory. And so I had a case where the company said that the answer was going to be in documents produced, and it wasn't. I mean, I went through hundreds of pages trying to find the answer to my question. And I wanted to know what training they had given their employees on sexual harassment. And they gave me the attendance records from a seminar. And I I wanted to know the training they had given three employees on sexual harassment because those were the employees I cared about. Mm -hmm. And they gave me attendance records from a sexual harassment training from several years earlier. And we went through every single page, my associate and I, we don't have a big staff. We sat there and we read them and they were all hand, you know, signatures, So it was hard to read mm-hmm. and we couldn't find those people. So that was their answer. Yeah, but we none. didn't know what, th- what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. We didn't know what it meant. Did that mean that there was no training for those people? We didn't know what it, we did not know what the answer meant. So beyond the usual course it also goes hand in hand with misusing the option to produce business records. Mm-hmm. Because they're really all about misusing document production, which this also goes into the ethical yes, rule. <laughs> so, but when you answer discovery, you should just follow the rule. And I cannot tell you the number of times I have said to opposing counsel, this is what the rule says. Yeah. And, and, I, I will read it to you. And then the other attorney will say, oh, this is the way we've always done it. I, I right, I don't care. I don't care. You want to hear what my bar number is? I've been doing it longer than you have.
1: <laughs> and then you have uh, what's rather unusual, uh, an addendum to your article. Yes, yes. Because something was left off of your original article, which was called Beyond the Usual Course. Right. And and if you could talk about the, the change in the Missouri rule and how that relates to the federal rule. about Because if I have a big business, what's the ordinary course of business for me might not be usable by you.
2: Right. So what happened was just how the Missouri Bar Journal publishes their articles. By the time this got published, I had written a different version of the article and they mistakenly published an old version. And I saw it in print and I went, no, you didn't publish the right version. And so they said, well, this is how we'll fix it. Can you write us an addendum? And so I did, and that's why there's an apology here. But what they did is they changed the method of production to deal with electronic discovery. That's what these extra rules this extra rule is meant to deal with. So whereas in federal now, we have all these rules about electronic discovery. This is our rule about electric electronic discovery. So it says a party who produces documents for inspection shall produce them as they are kept in the usual course of business, or shall organize and label them to correspond with the categories. That's the old version. And then now, they as long uh, blah, blah, blah. a party who produces documents for inspection shall produce them as they are kept in the usual course of business so long as this form is reasonably usable by the requesting party and that from what i understand was meant to deal with electronic discovery yeah. so it has to be in a way that i can use it um,
1: to make clear, we're, we're talking about Missouri Rule yes. 58.01 at this
2: point. 58.01C4, and the federal system has a lot of rules about, and I don't have the federal rules with me, but their rules are pretty specific about electronically stored information. And, and we have discovery conferences about electronically stored information, and we're supposed to meet and confer about how we're going to handle that, whereas we have this one little clause about how we're going to deal with electronically stored information. We don't have a lot in our cases. Usually we have some. Maybe we should be doing more, but it does have to be reasonably usable. So they can't give it to us in some way that we can't read it because I guess something could be produced to us in a way that it's on some computer, in some computer program that we would not be able to read it.
3: Yeah, and it would cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars to purchase the program to do it. We usually, I usually get everything in PDF, but there's other circumstances where it's like Excel or, or they have to convert it into something I could use.
2: Once in a while, at least under federal, we will ask for something in its native format. Yeah. We want to see what that email looked like. And oftentimes that's how I catch that there were attachments.
3: You get metadata.
2: Yeah. 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 And so I have a case right now where I, I wanted it. And they said that the defendant talked about proportionality. It's not that difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to do it. If I know how to do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's my, my measure is I Proportionality. Know how to do
3: it. We produced the email which attached exhibits, but we don't want to produce the exhibits. Why? Objection. It's devastating for my case. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. But, you know, those attachments are really important. You know, yeah. there is some document that they attach and, you know, it's only by reading the email that you gather that there was an attachment, but you might not have known. And sometimes only by looking at the native format do you realize that they had that they've cut and pasted an email. Because yeah. sometimes you can't really tell that an email's been cut and pasted. So I do ask for some emails in native format and they mm-hmm. I usually get that objection that it's not proportional. But I'm never asking mm-hmm. for that many. My no. my case is usually This dollars. email.
3: This particular email <laughs> is what I want.
2: Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, my, I have a case right now where, you know, everything happened from, you know, November to April. I mean, it's just that, not much, it's not that much time. You know, the entire case takes a few months. It shouldn't be that difficult. I think maybe there were five emails that are important, five email chains. And so it shouldn't be that difficult to give me these things in their native format. Uh But I get that complaint. So I don't.
1: And if you don't get it the right way, I, I guess we're back at court. Where you know, right? It, what another good faith conference and right. judge? I need it in a usable form, and this is not usable. Yes, it is. No, it isn't.
2: Right. And, you um, can read the email, but but I, I can't. Yeah. I can't see what they can see. They know what it says in that email, and they don't want to tell me. Right. Yeah. And so, and I want to see. I. I want to see sometimes the original of a personnel file because sometimes in a personnel file, of course, this doesn't help the people who are listening to this, but the personnel file will be in a folder and the folder's where all the good stuff is, you know. And so I want to see the original of the personnel file, not just what they pulled it out of. Mm-hmm. So they don't like to give me the original. Sometimes it's different color ink because, and that tells me that it was done at different times in, yeah,
3: I, I mean, I've had these issues with handwritten notes in Len Mao cases where I can, I can tell there's like different handwriting and that something was changed. And I, I go, I want, like, I want the original. I want to know who, and we get into this and they're like, well, we don't keep that. And it makes a huge difference. Getting the original can make a tremendous difference.
2: I have a case right now where they've produced everything in email and I am incredulous. I I cannot believe that nobody wrote anything down. I, you saw me. I was just writing while you were talking. Yeah. Because people write. I think. <laughs> you know. I mean, we all we all have pens. We were all writing a little bit. I can't believe that in this kind of facility nobody wrote a note, and yet they have produced nothing but emails. And I will get in summary judgment motions. I'll get you know we're entitled to summary judgment because this is all the emails say what about conversations and so discovery responses answers to interrogatories will often just tell me what's in emails but they never talk about what was said and i will ask about all communications mm-hmm. i'm not just talking about written, written. Yeah, yeah oral or written not, not verbal cuz verbal is oral or written and i say oral or written and they you know they just tell me what's in an email as though we don't as so though people don't talk to each other.
3: It's not just written discovery abuses. There's all kinds of discovery abuses that happen. And one of the most frequent ones is timely getting dates for depots that I want. And its in, Like right now, one of the things I keep looking at my phone about is continuation of a corporate rep depot that I served the notice in May discovery deadlines in January. They produced the first corporate rep after like months of me noticing it and then canceling it last second. And then the person we found out in the depot couldn't address nine of the topics. That was in the beginning of August. I keep trying to get, like I keep noticing it. And as a courtesy, they say, I'll get you a date next week. I need to cancel. I'm about to stop giving courtesies because what they're asking for is no longer professional, but like just not getting dates over and over and over again and being asked for professional courtesies. And on top of that, here's a big problem. And this is some, you mentioned, this is how we've always done it, right? When I was early in my career, I had a Mad Mal case and they were just not deposing my client. And we had a trial date and we needed to get things done. And I said, okay, I mean, that's your prerogative to not do it yet. You can do it later after everything else, whatever. I need the doctor's depot. I need this nurse's depot. And they just said, no. I mean, the plaintiff gets deposed first. You have the burden of proof. And I went, well, what is, what are you talking about that? That's what rule are you talking about? And the response was, that's just how it's done, Tim. And I went, that's not how it's done with me. Rule 56 says the order in which you want to conduct discovery shall not hinder the order in which I want to conduct discovery. And like, I had to go to the judge about it. And it's just repeatedly, I cannot get timely dates for depots that I want, where you're forced to do something that the other side considers like rude or unprofessional, where you're just noticing parties' depots, noticing surgeons'
1: depots. That every time I make a phone call now, I then follow up with an email, as we discussed today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, have to. Or or just start with the email, because I know I might have to go to court and say, I tried to get this deposition And they're going to say, I didn't say that. And... Then I'll just show here's here's I'm, my emails to you and you and you didn't respond.
2: I think it's a lot of unintended consequences. Maybe I think discovery cutoffs did this. When you have a discovery cutoff, then it encourages a party to delay. Run off the clock. Run off the clock. And if we didn't have a discovery cutoff, it wouldn't happen.
3: I do. I mean, in Missouri state court, the rules do not provide for one.
2: And yet, how many times did... I
3: do not agree to one, and we usually don't have one, but necessarily we get a trial date, and the trial date is a discovery cutoff. And if we're getting things late and doing depots late, they say, now I need to continue it because there's a de facto one, I suppose. I mean, trial. And they say, well, these depots just happened. We need to go get this expert. Well, those depots just happened because you didn't give me dates for the last 14 months. In federal court, it's especially a problem where they're trying to run on the clock. Right. Because you get discovery deadlines eight, seven months from when you filed the case, right. and you're not getting initial discovery answers until four months into that.
2: That's right. And you're really supposed to be getting everything in disclosures.
3: Yeah, you don't. You're not. Like never.
2: Right. And, you know, it, it is truly the rare case that I get everything in disclosures. And, again, if I get it, then I know mm-hmm. that I better take another look at my case Because they probably have a good defense. Um, Yeah. And this is sort of discovery related, but you know, you're supposed to fact plead your affirmative defenses in Missouri. So those out there who don't know what fact pleading is, you're supposed it as specific as a fact pleaded complaint. You're supposed to fact plead an affirmative defense, and Mm -hmm. we often have people who don't. And even when you try to do discovery on it. It doesn't make a void defense a good defense, but sometimes you can't even get good discovery on it. So you don't even know what their defense is about.
3: Yeah. So that you can file a motion for summary judgment about how there is no evidence to support their defense.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean these discovery abuses are a problem. One of them I brought with me was responses to requests for admissions. I love requests for admissions. So do I. Unfortunately, we're limited now in Missouri, yeah. um, which is too bad. But I like to get rid of prerequisites, jurisdictional or even if they're not jurisdictional. But we have a lot of little administrative prerequisites or under, under the Family Medical Leave Act, you have to have 50 employees in a 75 mile radius. You have to work 12 months. You have to, a bunch of things. If they, if the defendant, and often they don't. If they don't admit it in their answer, I just put it in a request for admission, and they will deny it. And then at least I believe I've never gotten sanctions yet. But you get they costs
3: are, for having to prove it.
2: Supposedly. Yeah. Right. We'll see. You don't. They,
3: You're right. supposed to get costs I mean, for having to prove to
2: get, it. We're supposed to get attorney's fees. Anyway. Anyway, if we win. Yeah. I mean, all of my cases, as my parents call it, do-gooder law, we're <laughs> supposed to get attorney's fees anyway. So more often than not, they deny basic things like, you know, this is a real email. And they know it's a real yeah. email. And it, I'm just trying to get rid of issues so right. I don't have yeah, to
1: for those. For those who don't uh, know, Missouri has a 25 request for admission Limit now, yes, which surprised me greatly. There's no such limit in the federal court,
2: right? And, and it
1: seems thing, like Tim, I know you guys. The whole I, point I do, of do, them is to eliminate issues in the case. Do you want to make it a short trial? Yeah, not? right. Or do you want to settle the case or we, not? We and, used to. And, send, and this is a great tool for doing that. And we used know, to send hundreds. You know, <laughs> I I worked with you. <laughs> yeah. And I know we did it here, and I do it still. Yeah. There may be more than a hundred. Probably, I bet you've done more than two hundred. Right? I have. And it really limits the issues, and it's a really good thing. And so now it doesn't say you can't get it; you have to ask for a leave of court for more. But it, I'm really, really surprised that that rule exists.
2: I get some responses to request for admissions that they call for a legal conclusion. Yeah. First of all, I, one time I did do one that admittedly called for a legal conclusion, but you can apply the law to the facts. Though. You can. Oh, yeah. And one time I did one that didn't. But this one is like in June through the end of plaintiff's employment. ACME, you know, this third party company performs services for defendant in handling plaintiff's request for FMLA leave. Assumes facts not in evidence. <laughs> that's, it's that's an objection.
3: That's pretty bold.
2: And instead and, of just
3: saying denied.
2: Right. And to the <laughs> expense to the extent a response is deemed required, and then it just goes on and on with an unsworn response. Yeah. And how admit it because we know that it's true. Yeah. Um, they absolutely, because that's the person later who they said, I could only contact through the law firm. Mm-hmm. They had so much control over her. And so we know that that the company and this third party administrator, I'm sure that in personal injury you deal with third-party administrators. Sometimes. For, well, sometimes, like employee benefits. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens a lot in, in Family Medical Leave Act cases is yeah. that we have third-party.
3: I think mean, we we deal, We'll deal with liens with them and things
2: like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that's why you would. Well, so sometimes they, they handle the Family Medical Leave Act, and a company can't absolve itself of responsibility by mm-hmm. blaming the third party. And I can't sue the third party either. There's case law that says it. The company is responsible for the actions of the third-party
1: administrator. I think that's a good example of concept creep. This idea that handled and performed services are legal. Oh, charged. Uh, <laughs> these are legal terms. But just because something has legal relevance doesn't mean it's a legal term or calls for a legal conclusion. But I've seen that that objection a lot.
2: I would bet you that if I see that contract, which they are objecting to giving me that it will say that you will be performing services for us. Yeah. Right. So it's probably a services contract. Yeah. What else would it be? I mean, that's what they do. That's what this company does is that it administers Family Medical Leave Act claims for a company, and our client was told by their human resources person, well, you go to this company to process your Family Medical Leave Act request.
3: You are permitted to assert a request for admission that says admit that your conduct in this case violated the Family Medical Leave Act. Admit that you were negligent. Like, those are valid things that can be admitted in a case.
2: Can you can you ask that about negligence?
3: It's applying law to the facts, okay. yeah. Admit that your doctor breached the standard of care. You can do those things. They can deny it. Mm-hmm. They're welcome to deny it but you're allowed to ask if they are willing to admit it just like they can admit it in an answer. Right. Or just like a corporate rep can admit it.
2: Yes. Very important in this case was the chronology as, as it most of the time is. And under the family medical leave act, it's very technical law. The, the employee has X number of days after given notice in writing of the insufficiency of their doctor's note. You know, you have, 15 days or 20 days I, I don't remember but so defendant discharged plaintiff before this third party notify plaintiff in writing that the doctor certification was insufficient states legal conclusions I mean it's <laughs> actually in the rec that you know those words are taken straight from the regulation about insufficiency has to be notified in writing
1: you know. And how many times have we seen it that the, the things we see in writing as objections or responses, you just can't wait to get to the deposition right. and see if they can say the same thing with a straight face. You know, go, that's a legal conc- conclusion, handling. I don't know, know what you mean by handle. And uh, really? Yeah. Well, oh. and usually they don't. And then, I mean, I don't care if the
3: lawyer does it. I'll, I like. I'll, I'll, we all have dictionaries on our phones now. And so I'll go, I mean the Webster Dictionary definition of this. That's what I mean when I use the term. I can find synonyms if you would like me to look those up. And then the lawyer usually stops and you get answers. And then you pull out the discovery answer and go, why did you, why did you answer this way? Do you understand why I'm having to ask you these questions?
1: Well, Fern, I don't know whether this has been mostly a therapy session for us all to <laughs> get it out or whether, you know, it's a, it started out differently than it ended. We've had several sessions. Do you want to have the last word?
2: I would like to say, I guess as my last word, as I'm waiting in my legal career, is that I do wish this would be taught in law school, although, as you pointed out, once you get out there in the real world, maybe teaching something in ethics in law school doesn't matter. But I do wish this would be taught in law school, and that when judges and legal ethics people in charge go out on the lecture circuit, that they would talk about this more to practitioners and the importance of professional responsibility obligations in discovery, because in litigation, I mean, that's what the big fights are about in litigation, and it doesn't matter what the subject matter is, whether it's a will contest, I assume they have discovery in will contests, or personal injury or employment litigation. We all have the same issues coming up all the time, and we're playing by the same set of rules. And so we're supposed to be getting a level playing field, and we're not, and we need education.
1: I agree. We've been talking about discovery uses and abuses with Fern Wolf of the law firm of Silverstein and Wolf in St. Louis. Thank you for joining us.
2: You're welcome. I'm very happy to be here.
1: This has been another episode of The Jury is Out. I'm Eric Beath. I'm Tim Cronin. We'll see you next time.
0: The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.